Welcome back to The Producer Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Versman, and today we're jumping from the world of VFX to the realm of color as we sit down with colorist John Clay Burnett to discuss how a producer can improve the color process of their film. So without further ado, let's get started. So thank you very much for coming on the show today, John Clay. Oh yeah, sure. I love talking color. To start, like, explain how like color came to be something you do. Because I've been to festivals and you usually don't really run into a lot of people walking around being like, I really want to do color. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. There's not always a lot in in a crowd. Um. I gotta think back now. I've been doing color for so long; it's it's hard to remember initially. I mean, initially I was just a one man band doing everything, and so you learn how to do at least pieces of stuff decently well. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was something I didn't see a lot of other people doing, and the software made sense, and I enjoyed doing it. And uh, I was working on some other other people's feature films and projects, and they needed a colorist. And I actually knew the software and how to use it and, and had some experience at that point. And uh, so it kind of came to me by default early on. By early on, we're talking 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And I was initially using Apple Color was the software okay. I used. They've since killed off the software. But I really, I really liked it, um, and I enjoyed doing it, and I got really positive feedback from the projects that I had worked on. So I worked on a few, like hour-long narrative feature content, and I was doing. I mean, I had to do it for my other commercial nonprofit, you know, promo video type stuff in between. But um, I mean, as I had it, I I put it out there, and people, I guess, because I didn't necessarily talk about it talk about myself as a colorist at the time but as i just looked at work um, i would get requests for it once in a while and as it's iterated and grown i've updated and bought new you know control surfaces and color wheels to speed it up i do it still for all my projects and um i've started to hire it out some on different projects we start building out teams but uh, i really enjoy getting in and and crafting a look for a director for the film for the audience and being able to have the tools to rely to know that the image is reliable um i don't know there's i enjoy being able to do that for a director and and so they can trust what we're seeing and what we're doing is the film and story they want to create and uh, i love i love helping people in that way um yeah, there's a lot of detail and nuance to color at a, depending on the distribution side of stuff. But um, I, I enjoy making things look pretty. <laughs> I think I think it enhances the audience's experience uh, a lot and matters a lot. Yeah, and there's a lot even in my own projects. I know the audience never even knows <laughs> the colorist does, but it makes all the difference in the end product. So I guess maybe to start, I do have 
kind of just a couple more like bigger picture questions. So the first one is like, is color strictly a post-production part of the filmmaking process or is that something that should be getting discussed earlier on by the producer and director? Well, I mean, most as with most anything in film and any skill or discipline, it always depends and varies, but yes, it's always, the more you can plan in any area that usually the better, the better it turns out to be. So color is something that can be even planned out and, and is the bigger budgets, the bigger films will do this. They will, they'll plan out what cameras they're using and they'll start working on test shoots and then taking those images, you know, putting them through the post-production process before anything else is shot. So they can refine that. They know how it's going to work. They'll send it to a colorist. They'll do some looks, uh, maybe not super refined, but they'll get some, some general directions for it. And then they can export a LUT, a lookup table is called a LUT, which then um, depending on the hardware and stuff you have can be put into the cameras, can be put into the monitors that the directors are using. So as they're filming, they're not looking at just that gray flat image. They're looking at the reference for what they're hoping this will look like in the end. Of course, there's refinement and changes that are made once you get into the, the final side of post-production, but that's a helpful way. And they'll, they can be a very elaborate test, but it's because it's a helpful way for a director of photography to know what they're doing and how that's going to be processed. A director can can give notes on the field that they're trying to create. And they'll sometimes they'll even provide a lot of different LUTs for different scenarios and situations they're filming in that they can be swapped in. You know, you can load in different ones. And that's very much a pre-production into production process. There's also on larger sets, there's a DIT, digital imaging technician, who will have a cart with color wheels and some sort of DaVinci Resolve or baselight, some sort of software uh, on site. So they're often, they're the ones like offloading the footage and stuff even. They can even do live color grade as the as the image is piped in, they can look at their monitors and they're, um, they're tweaking and making adjustments. They're helping the director as live and fast as possible know if what he's capturing is gonna end up the way he's hoping. And so he's kind of a quick reference point to have on set to handle color because color is so much of the the imaging process for what a director and director of photography are trying to create. So yeah, so it's very much in pre-production and then even into production that are options. The closer you can get to those things, the the better the final image can look. So it's not necessarily required. Plenty of people go out and shoot all kinds of things and do it in post. Um, but it helps you know if you're blowing out highlights, colors, all kinds of things that you just have more eyeballs, which is bigger crew, which is more money, you know, producers, line items. Uh, and yes. the further you get into that, which is why the bigger, the bigger budget uh, projects definitely get into that more. Um, it, it's a, uh, it's called color science when you're doing things more at that level. And there's people that are very nerdy and detailed that know math and uh, not me stuff that uh that really can get into that and make sure you're not what they call breaking an image and that it's they're getting what they're creating what they are trying to create okay you always have plan b and c and d and z but <laughs> you're you're trying to put that time in there to run as many tests as you can 
and come up with many, as many contingencies and options to help everybody be aware of what's happening. Yeah, for sure. So I guess I'd be kind of curious to hear your thoughts. Like, is obviously a lot of independents in that just don't have the budget to do all of that. But like, if say they only had the budget to maybe do a portion of that pre-pro type color work, is there a certain area that you would recommend put it towards that? Yeah, it's it's helpful to at least shoot some footage with whatever cameras you're planning to use, send it to the people you're going to send it to, send it to a colorist, have them run through, pull it up, drop it in the software, just make sure that workflow works. And what you can do then is, I mean, the easiest, so there's levels, let me finish a sentence here. There's levels of um, ways to do this where cameras now will often have that, that that shoot some sort of raw or log have usually a way to just j- built into the camera there's a way to generate and turn on a basic LUT rec 709 LUT that you can look at the little flip out screens or the monitors or and, and even send that back to over hdmi or sdi back to the you know other reference monitors so that's like a, an initial way of just not having to look at gray flat imaging um so that's kind of the basic version. The next is then to download or buy specific LUTs for the specific settings for the specific camera that's being used and to test out whether those look better or different than the ones that are built in, if, you, if that's an option. But you could, so buying or downloading so you can upload other ones that other people have created would be the next level. And then sending that test footage to a colorist who then does some grading work and then generates a, a more custom LUT would be like the next level. So that probably costs even more to, to get on that. But there's no reason anybody these days should be looking at gray, flat gray and, and log. There, there's always some way to kind of bump it up to, to look more like what the end image is gonna be kind of closer to. Right. So I, w- I would say just, ch- just channeling that process. I don't know that, um, if you can get even some stuff up front, if if you have even more money, you can have a colorist say, you know, even shoot some test footage of low light. There's some scenes, try to replicate a little bit of what that might look like. Do some outdoor, do some bright, do whatever your three to five, a handful of, of kind of range of different scenes you're going to be shooting, do some basic versions of that, send that over to a colorist, let them deal with it. And then they'll send you, you know, a handful of LUTs that you can swap in and out you then you may not need a guy on set as much um just because you kind of already have a look going uh, i've been a part of some pretty decent budget stuff that don't do any of those things and it it does create a little more time and work on the color end um because you're trying to fix and put some stuff together that might have it just depends on how much money they have it might have gone together easier for me if they had looked at some other stuff but that's not necessarily the case either um, there's just a lot of other work and sometimes people are shooting really fast and don't have a lot of time to check all those things. And, um, I would say that first is the, the pre-production work and finding some sort of LUT you want to pop in. A second would be to then have a guy on set who's doing it. Um, I don't know. You could probably go either way with that. It seems to me like it would work better if you just had a handful of LUTs you want to drop in, depending on the senior shooting, then you don't have to have a guy on set messing with the color settings himself. Yeah. Um, 
And then you just take notes of that because it doesn't get baked into the footage that's shot on cameras that you can upload that stuff to. And then maybe even sometimes we'll include that as you offload the footage, it'll have notes. People can reference camera team will write it down, which LUTs were used for which scenes. So the colors knows that as a reference point, they'll probably go in and refine it and adjust it even further, but they just know as a starting point, what that, what that looked like. So my other kind of big picture question uh, is like, and I know with film, there's n nothing's ever the same from project to project. But I know for me, it was kind of a learning curve the first time I worked with a colorist as opposed to just doing it all myself on what like the process and the timeline for getting that all done was. So maybe kind of explain that and like, what would you recommend a producer like at bare minimum, you probably need to budget X amount of weeks or, you know, months to get through that process. Right. Are we assuming like feature films? Yeah, I would be, I would be thinking like more either like feature film, feature documentary, that type of stuff. Um, yeah. So the color process is whatever, whatever your software it was edited in, you need to duplicate that and get a version where you take out uh, a lot of the text. I take out a lot of the music. Uh, you can, you can leave some of that in, but what you're really focused on in color is just the color. So you don't necessarily need an audio track. You should probably, if you want an audio track, just render out a separate audio track. That's just baked into, you know, a stereo track that the colors doesn't have to deal with all the, fun bits and pieces that were added in there for, for a sound guy to, to play around with. Um, just like just, you need to simplify all the other aspects and leave the most detailed to be the, the actual color. All the text should come off. Um, visual effects have to be, you know, added in and then everything needs to be like dropped down to one layer. So anything you've stacked up or done, like there's, there's ways to get all that transported over into a color software. But the idea is to get it all simplified down. There shouldn't be a bunch of stuff in the sequence for color. You get that sent over to your software, to your colorist. There's a variety of different methods depending on what needs to happen. Different projects require different things. But the idea is to get that over. Then there can be a bit of time even just getting the hard drives. Um, then you'll send them a hard drive, usually with all the raw footage. So you'll need to budget for that. Uh, another copy of the footage at least the footage that was used you don't have to send all the other footage necessarily um that gets sent over there's amount of time where they've got to hook it all up connect it all together it's called a online conform which is going through and making sure that what they are seeing is what you saw as a locked edit and um so you'll export before you send it over usually you'll export that audio as a simplified file um and then you also want to export the video of whatever the locked cut was so that they can have a reference point. There's ways in software you can open that up and set it as a reference point. And they'll go through and double check the beginning end of every clip to make sure it's all correct and um, accurate to the way you you as the director editor had, had seen it. So they have to make sure all that matches, relink stuff. There's a whole piece to that that can take a little while, meaning up to a couple of days to a week depending on how complicated all that is. I feel like documentaries get to be a little more complex okay. um, just because they have a lot of other aspect ratios and file formats and still images and um, 
any time changes, slow motion stuff or keyframed things, those can, there's a variety of methods to get that to translate over uh, and can be complex. So there, there's just allowing for some of that time. Then once that's all set, then finally like, okay, we got the, we've got the film and the color stands the way, sometimes it goes very simple, but sometimes it, it, it takes a while. It's in their hands the way that, that we had seen it and then they start into color. Um, and yeah, that can take, depending on the length of the project and how many cuts, how many angles. Um, if it's a documentary, it could go faster just because a lot of it is interviews that are all shot at one time. And so once you grade one interview, it, you know, there's a theory where that could translate across every instance of that interview. And there's sun changes and times of day, depending on how long it takes. So there's, and there's variations that take time, but there is a possibility where if it's in a very controlled environment that could go very quickly, then depending on how much B-roll or additional footage or images or historical archive and so forth, motion graphics, so forth, um, get added in there, um, you know, that just adds more time. Uh, feature film, narrative stuff depends on how slow pace, fast pace, action, how many cameras were used because you got to get everything to match. That's what takes the time. It's not making one image look good. It's, it's taking the time. Um, and so it can take anywhere from usually a feature. I, you, you, I would say you probably can't do it under a week if you want to spend very much time on it. I mean, you could send it to somebody. They could do it in two, three, four days and send it back to you, but that doesn't give a whole lot of time for notes or revisions or any adjustments. Um, you know, Hollywood's spending up to four to eight weeks on a feature. So it, if you have the time to plan out for a feature film, three to four weeks, that can be really handy. Um, I don't usually find very many people that <laughs> that's not super common necessarily. Okay. The, bigger budget the bigger budget stuff um, allows for that more than, than lower budget, obviously, for time. Um, but that's really helpful to get in there, work on it, tweak it. Then there's VFX that get done. Um, and so that's a different conversation. Some people like to do color first and then send it to VFX so that they can make it blend with the final color. Some people say that's very, very wrong. You should never do that in your entire life. And they want you to send the raw footage to VFX. And then you've got a, it's usually a colorist or I've, I've seen it. It's in the size of projects I've worked on. It's often been my job to get that created and sent over to them. Um, and then I'm reintegrating it uh, back. And sometimes they want LUTs to put on it themselves so they can kind of see where I'm headed with it. Um, and then you have to reintegrate it and make tweak it and adjust it. And I've done it both ways before and after color. Um, yeah, it just depends, you know, speed, budget, how the distribution, um, the larger the distribution, the more they want to have the raw stuff to deal with. If you're just going web or something I've done on smaller projects, even where we did it the other way around, um, it just, you know, just varies. I've had it work, work well either way. Yeah, that actually was one of my questions later on. You kind of addressed there, but was how does color and the VFX process work? Is there, if there was like a, you should do it this way to make everything easier, but. VFX want the, the most information and highest resolution to work with. And so that's why they want the, the raw or some sort of version of raw footage to work from. And there's a, there's a variety of different formats you can export as, you can send them raw stuff. There's, it kind of just depends on the VFX house and how they want to work with it. 
Um, what's also always helpful, and a producer should know this, or a post-production supervisor, because a producer doesn't always carry over into post necessarily. There's usually a post mm-hmm. supervisor. I mean, knowing your end distribution is critical. If you're just like, well, I don't know, we're going to shop it around after, you probably are going to end up doing things at a higher level than you need to, or you'll end up underdoing them. And then what you need to deliver for is not adequate. So, I mean, knowing your distribution, you're like, oh, we're just going straight to streaming uh, or straight to DVD is not really as much a thing anymore, but um, that's been a thing or, you oh, we're going theatrical or, you know, what is it? 4K, 2K, web, social media, like it can all vary depending on the nature of the project. And that does play a role in how much time and how critical it is the work um does it actually add to or is it just wasting pixels you know <laughs> at some point you're trying too hard and you're like it this is not improving the experience or story it's, it's just completely unnecessary for what we're trying to create um, and just knowing where those boundaries are is is really important and i think is you know the guy in charge's role is to know those so you've brought up quite a bit already uh the producer's favorite word which is budget uh <laughs> so and obviously every colorist is going to have their own rate and that uh but are there any tips or advice you have for producers on budgeting for color so they're not just getting to post and then realizing they have to go you know find more funds to do it Right. I mean, the easiest is just reach out to a few folks or whoever you know you want to work with ahead of time and and ask um, what their kind of range would be for that project and just get those numbers. Some people work by the project, some work by the hour. Uh, it just, again, depends on what, who you're using, where you're going. Um, it can, I, some people do rates by the hour up to certain points. Um or they'll, they'll add on, you know, um, it, I mean, it can range from a few thousand dollars to over $20,000, you know, it just depends on length of the project. And again, the distribution, um, do you have to, <clears throat> some stuff, if you're going to theater, do you have to create the DCP? Who's creating the DCPs to show it in theater? Does it require grading in a theater or does it, I've done stuff that's gone to theater before and it didn't, it didn't require grading in, in a theater setup. Those are very expensive to access, expensive to use. Um, and, but, but knowing that we were able to get on the phone and talk with a variety of folks working on that project to figure out what the output needs were. And that'll, that'll dictate a lot of, there's just a lot of incumbent costs with some of that. The higher end cost higher. Um, yeah, if you're just doing Fathom or some of those others, it, it may not require as much um, for delivery. Streaming platform depends on where you're going, but, but getting in and talking to folks and knowing those things ahead of time uh, is always better and le- and accounts for less surprises. I think Netflix can be sometimes a little more pick, a little pickier than, than Amazon. Um, but, you know, 
when it comes to like actually you know choosing the colors do you want to work with uh what should a producer obviously the producer does isn't going to really interact with them near as much as like a director does but what should a producer do to make sure it's going to be a good fit for the project yeah i mean i would always look at their body of work to see if if it seems to be in line with what you're trying to create it's not that colorists can't get outside of a norm or a default but there's there's people that that have some kind of bents and leanings um i mean i would just say look at their body of work and see if that's what you like um get on the phone talk to them in person see if you can get along um you know a good team is important and um just ask questions process um good people that do good work you know that's that's what you're looking for um it, again depending on i mean it doesn't hurt to ask if they have the experience or ability to deliver whatever it is you're looking for you're going to need for that project uh, just just to see what that process or, is going to be like um even if they don't have the experience it doesn't mean that they're they're a bad option it just may mean there's a little extra work uh to go into that you know anybody can find answers there's answers to be had at least you know yeah people but it's also important to just make sure again the higher end it making sure they have the hardware that's necessary to if you're shooting in are you shooting in 1080 or 2k or 4k or 8k or 12k or what like do do they have sometimes i get questions like do you have the software and hardware ability to handle stuff at you know thus and such uh information data um, yeah we've got what we need here and it's it's just new to them or it's not a bad question just to double check and to make sure uh, you also want to make sure that the hard drives you're sending um, I would check with them to find out what hard drive they want. One thing to make sure of that I've run into is that uh, there's a difference between Windows and Mac compatibility with hard drives. And that's not insolvable, but you do need to be aware of it. We, we've had situations um, from other clients or people I've worked with where you run into those compatibility back and forths and it, uh, it, it just eats time and delays the start of stuff if you don't address that early enough. And... Uh, it seems obvious, but then doesn't, and seems like, well, other things work back and forth. And it's like, well, hard drives and footage does, but hard drive formats don't. You just want to make sure you're uh, on the same page to do whatever's necessary to, to make that happen. There needs to be a conversion or something on the drive. Right. Uh, you mentioned like, uh, you know, getting on the phone and kind of talking with them some. Uh, I'm just curious, like what tips or advice maybe over the years have you come to learn about just having good communication in general so that people aren't uh either misinterpreting you know what you're saying or working off of assumptions and such it's important as a colorist to have a clear process lined out of how an editor or director how the client needs to prepare the media to get to you um it doesn't work to just it can depending on how much money you want to put into it you can just send a premiere project say in a hard drive 
uh, that puts a lot of extra work on the colorist and their time. It may not be the most efficient use of money in that case. So in my end, you know, to make sure there's a process in place to say, how do I need it prepared? What, what files do I need sent to me? And then finding out what that process is going to be like through the, through the project. Um, how do they get to see it? How do they get to provide notes? Do they come to your place and watch it on your screen or theater? Or then how are we delivering it back? What are the deadlines? Um, it color, anyway, so that, that's a general overview of things that are important to, to have. Um, and then as you're color grading, like it's a little different than editing where sometimes you go through multiple iterations of stuff and uh, you know, you, it can be a little bit before you feel comfortable sending edits. Color, you can just do one one image sometimes, you know, and say, well, we can shoot this over and see if we're like in the general direction. Again, if you've done some of that in pre-production, that kind of speeds through that piece of the process. But oftentimes what, what I'll do is take five or six different scenes, kind of a, a swatch, a swath, swatch, whatever, a sample across the film of different, colors, scenes, brightness, darkness, and do some temp grade on a bunch of those. And then you kind of put them together and we say, do we feel like this is matching kind of your hero scenes or hero shots? I have to do it on wide shots. And is this, do we like what we're seeing here? And then if we like what we're seeing in each of those, then we'll go into a scene and, and bring that out a little more and say, are we like where we're heading with this scene? Because once you can get approval on two or three different varieties or variations, you say, okay, great. And then it's a bit, it's not copy paste, uh, but it's, you have a direction of where you're headed for the other looks. And so you can then move through some of the other scenes more quickly with confidence. And then as you have scenes put together, you're, you're sending that over and saying, all right, how's this headed? Where, where's the direction on this? You can, and then we use software for, um, to provide notes back. And that can be a director uh, directors of photography are often involved. That's a little bit of a, depends on what that arrangement is like. Um, they'll often have notes of how they want to darken or brighten or focus or color adjust or change or paint out, or there's just a lot of different things that, that can be requests. Um, and it's important for a colorist just to know, you know, what are the budget limits? What are the time constraints to then stay focused on the big picture side of things to make sure overall the film is finished because you, rarely ever have time or money to actually get in and change every little tweak that wants to be, that's, that's being yeah. requested. Um, but yeah, just, just having information on what needs to send over and then, you know, talking through, making sure they don't being clear on deliverable deadlines and then expectations for when review will be made and turned back in. And then what does each turnaround look like for adjustments? And again, the more time you have, the easier it is if, director or somebody sitting around just working on this it gets a little easier to have faster turnarounds but if they've got other stuff going on sometimes that's why longer amounts of time to do it help even because you're just the initial coloring doesn't take maybe four weeks could doesn't always but you're allowing for a few days back and forth for some review and notes and tweaks on the back end of it once the majority of the work has been done and you're just making adjustments have a few kind of wrap-up questions here uh, first one being, and this is something I've noticed even just like I'll watch a show on like a streaming platform on my computer. And then when I go and watch the same one on my phone, it looks very different color wise. So as a producer, like 
what can I be doing to make sure when the director is reviewing color on a device, he's actually seeing a good representation of it? Yeah, devices can vary widely on their portrayal of color and the way it displays. Um, and then on the high end of things with films, they they can grade differently. There's HDR, there's SDR. Um, it may even be graded different than the theater version looked. They'll do it for for home release or something. Um, so most <laughs> that's that's major million dollar you know releases. And then there's um, the standard where you kind of have one version that you send out and um, and that gets put across all. So yeah, it is important to know that what you're looking at is based on some sort of standard. And then you just have to s- swallow really hard when you're watching it on terrible projectors or TV screens or someone's phone. And you're just like, ah, you know, uh, at least they're watching the film, right? And hopefully they don't hate it, but it, it is important. So using software like, um, so there's there's a couple different ways of doing it. <clears throat> um, we'll start on the low end of it. Um, there's ways to color calibrate monitors. It's a little bit of a do-it-yourself way of doing it. You can buy those for a few hundred bucks and it'll color calibrate a screen. It's not super reliable. Again, it depends on the, all of it really depends on the, excuse me, the distribution and an output. Okay. Depends on how critical all that really needs to be. So you can do things that way. You can buy calibrated monitors. Those, those cost quite a bit several thousand dollars like I have one that I that I reference everything off of to know that it's it's right um there are so what I often do is uh, on at least decent sized color projects I have an iPad Pro the 12 inch 13 inch iPad Pro those are actually decently cal- color accurate they're not just like cal- you can't really calibrate them yourself but they are they're they're very good representations of color accuracy. And I'll mail that out. I have a system and a hard case and all the stuff that I'll send that out to, to clients. Um, and then we use Frame.io. I have it all preloaded on, on the iPad so they can just bring it up, look at it, make notes. We'll hop on phone calls to talk. Uh, we'll talk, hop on Zoom. But that's but we know then that, that the iPad they're referencing, because I've had them side by side with mine, that they look very, very similar and there's enough confidence that it's it's working. Um, I did uh, a color for the the Kendrick's documentary, uh, Show Me the Father, and we even did that. I mailed them out the hard the um, the iPad, and we used the the online platforms then to review. Frame.io has done a good job of maintaining color accuracy as long as it's viewed on um, decent devices. And then up from there, there's more elaborate ways a colorist can connect. It's it's more complicated there's um uh, there's another higher end colorist that the kendricks use who um they got lg oled tvs which are not perfect but they're also decent and there's ways to set up streaming boxes that you have to route through internet ports and all this to more directly send an image from the colorist office to their screen and then they have those people come in and calibrate all of those um, to make sure to have some you know reasonable confidence that what they're both seeing is is similar. 
Um, and the LG OLEDs are, are nice because they also display HDR. If you're going into that route and realm, that can be helpful. It's anyway, again, the, the bigger the project, the bigger the complexities and the bigger mm -hmm. the expense. Um, but that's, yeah, you need some sort of calibrated monitor um, to reference it off of. And it doesn't hurt even, even as we're grading, even off of my reference, we'll then, you know, render out a version of it and I'll check it on my TV. I'll check it on my iPad. I'll, ch I'll check it on three or four other devices just to see if there are large glaring issues that say, uh, it seems to be skewing this way pretty consistent. Well, maybe we could tweak it back, but then you also, you always come back and bank it off the, you know, judge off the main reference monitor and say, uh, it's just not, we're just going to say it's going to kind of go that way if you watch it on that device because the the original is is right and and closer to what we want to make and there's also you know you can as a colorist you're referencing scopes and um kind of like your flight instruments to make sure you're on you're on track as well but that doesn't really help a director or producer as much it's that's what they that's what colors is using but then making sure they have some sort of way to view and monitor um, can be very helpful. And again, if you're going theatrical, there may be a point to go rent a theater and watch it in a theater. Like there, you can go a lot of different ways to check it out and make sure what you're delivering is what needs to be delivered. Um, there's also a process where it gets sent to the final render. So once it comes from color, it either goes back to an editor to then recompile everything with text and credits and, um, any motion graphic stuff or final marry it with final um, mix sound mix and music and all that 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 may be the editor that may be the colorist it all just depends on the arrangement and agreement of who gets that back to finally compile but then it goes to um, to the studio or whoever the distributor is and they can kick back and even give QC notes quality control so that may come back to a colorist even and say well we want to tweak this or adjust that or take this or um there's a lot of adjusting that may need to happen there. And that can take time as well. That's usually the more higher brand studio studios that get involved. That's that's what happens. If it's going theater, that can happen. It can go through QC process. And um you gotta you might plan a little time. You don't don't plan to wrap up the film two days before you're gonna distribute it. If you're going that big of a route, you know, you wanna have a few weeks or a couple months in there to allow for tweaks and changes. So you're not running right up to the, right up to the deadline. So my next question then is, and your time uh, doing color work, have you noticed that there's either common mistakes or maybe misconceptions that producers have about working with a colorist? Um, I mean, a lot of it is the, there's a there's mistaken setup time like how much time it takes to actually get started and get the drive over and um the back and forth that can be to get that all set up and going is sometimes missed um or they're running up on the deadline end of it and they're up against a hard deadline which forces everyone to put stuff back out the door a little faster or doesn't leave enough time for review or screenings to happen that can happen in the editing stage too but to um just run it by a few folks and make sure that it's getting the feedback and notes that that are helpful like just don't forget the pre and and then the very end post tail part of it my final question and this could be 
related directly to color. It could be more general, just post-production related. But what would be one piece of advice you would give to a producer about running a smooth or good, however you would describe it, post-production process? I mean, I think you hit on hit on it earlier. It's communication. Um, it's really important to know what the deliverables are total in the end and then what the deadline benchmarks are going to be along the way to get there. When are things expected? Um, I've done post-supervising a little bit because I was helping with color. I was helping manage a lot of those pieces that come together. I was doing some of them, but I was helping manage some of the other folks and putting it all back together as well. And it's just important to know what the deadlines are and to check in with people. Um, even a few days out, it doesn't help to say, are we, I like questions of, are we still on track to hit thus and such deadline? Um, and that's, that's tough. I try not to do that day of alone because then if somebody forgot or missed a thing, that can be a little too late to get it done. Making sure you're whatever the, the necessity is, it could be a week out. It could be what's, what's needed or three days or five days, you know, whatever it is to give them enough runtime to say, Oh, I didn't understand and to pivot and then still deliver by the deadline and get what you need done uh, is really, really helpful. And then I've been on stuff that where they set up a Slack group or some sort of easy communication that can have, even have different channels in there of who's talking to who through the production. And I found that to be helpful. You can hop on and message people. You don't have to get into all the text messaging and all that. Um, you can get notifications and just keep on top of links or notes or questions. And then you can hop on phone calls, Zoom calls, whatever else as an aside from that to have your other communication, but it can be helpful to get multiple people on the same page very quickly to have some sort of communication channel that way. Well, on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap up this episode. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. Sure. Thank you. And on that note, we are going to wrap up this episode of The Producer Podcast. Until next time, make sure to subscribe to The Producer Podcast, and thanks for listening.